Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Welcome to the Elisa Childers Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. We're going to do something a little bit different this week. Typically, we focus on one topic for the whole, you know, 40 minutes to an hour. But today, I'm going to bring you three different topics broken up into segments, so to speak. Uh, if you listened last week, you'll remember that I popped in about halfway through to let you know that this podcast is also available on video format. So we launched a YouTube channel. And since we launched it, I've been releasing this podcast, the content that you listen to here, on the video format. So you can go there if you prefer to watch me interact with my guests or talk into the camera. You can go check that out there. But one thing we've also done is starting to release uh, shorter videos. So this first segment we're going to bring you is called Thoughts on the Ravi Zacharias Scandal, When Your Lifeboat Springs a Leak. Friends, I just want to take a few minutes here to just share from my heart about the Ravi Zacharias scandal. And if you're not familiar with what's going on, Ravi Zacharias was a very famous speaker, author, apologist, very influential in the apologetics community. Many apologists would say that uh, his organization and his lectures and books and words were incredibly impactful in their own journeys toward becoming apologists. Um, he died of cancer last May, and allegations have been brought out of sexual misconduct. Uh, just uh, You can go online to look at all of those. And in the last few days, Ravi's organization, RZIM, has confirmed that their ongoing investigation uh, shows that he is guilty of the sexual misconduct. And in fact, in the, the report, they even say, and I'll just quote this here, it says, credible evidence that Mr. Zacharias engaged in sexual misconduct over the course of many years. Some of that misconduct is consistent with and corroborative of that which is reported in the news recently. And some of the conduct we have uncovered is more serious. And so uh, not only what we're reading in the, um, the different uh, outlets that have reported on this, what RZIM is saying is that it's actually worse. There's more to come out that, that we don't even know about right now. And so I I'm, I'm not overly optimistic about human nature. And so I think because of that, it doesn't surprise me when Christian leaders fail, when they fall, when they're involved in abuse scandals. Um, I don't always comment on it, but one of the reasons I felt compelled to comment on the Ravi Zacharias scandal is because I've been so public in the past about endorsing his ministry. I share a story, a very personal story, both in my book and 
uh, through video, probably on lots of different podcasts over the years, over the past few years, where I share a story about when I was drowning in doubt. And the metaphor that came to my mind was just that waves were crashing over my head of doubt. And in desperation one night, I cried out to God and I asked him to send me a lifeboat because I needed help. I needed someone to be able to uh, help answer some of the questions that I had been posed with. And so uh, I I tell the story of driving in my car and fiddling with the radio, and I I hear this voice calmly answering questions from college students that were very similar to the questions that had been posed to me when I was in a faith crisis— and so I, I waited till the end of the broadcast, and they announced that it was Ravi Zacharias. And so I've again, I've publicly stated I downloaded his app, and I listened to his daily broadcast every day for a year. And it was through that process that I got connected with other apologists and seminaries who helped, who God really used to help rebuild and reconstruct my faith. And so, of course, it was. Uh, incredibly heartbreaking to hear these allegations and from so many witnesses at the same time uh, where there there was not just misconduct, there wasn't just sin. I think what makes Ravi's sin so grievous is, A, because it was ongoing and heavily premeditated. Um, It was predatory in its nature toward other people and... um, and, and I think that the third thing that's probably so disturbing is to realize that he knew he had cancer. He knew he was dying. And as far as we know, he went to his deathbed unrepentant for these sins. And, um, and so my main goal in, in talking with you today is not to comment on the ins and outs of the allegations and the court cases and all of that stuff. You, All of that is available online. You can read up on that for yourselves. Um, but what I want to do is, is help us make sense of when your lifeboat springs a leak, right? Because when I tell the story of discovering Ravi Zacharias, and I've said many times in the past publicly that he was one of the first, if not the first, lifeboat that I believed God had sent me to help um, with my doubts and my questions. And so the question is, what do you do when a spiritual leader fails you? What do you do when um, you've been greatly helped by somebody who, uh, you know, I don't know the motives of Ravi's heart. I don't know if he believed the words that he was saying. I don't know if he was a complete charlatan or totally sincere, but just living a double life? I don't know. God knows the motives of his heart. Uh, But what I do know is that God used his words to help me, and that is true. And so the one thing that came to my mind when I heard these allegations, you know, when I put my faith in Christ, I didn't put my faith in Rabbi Zacharias. I didn't put my faith in a pastor. I didn't put my faith in a mere human. I put my faith in God. I put my faith in the God-man, Jesus, who lived a perfectly sinless life, who was never guilty of any abuse or uh, sin or misconduct of any kind. And he gave his life for me, and he's who I put my trust in. And it can be difficult to make sense of gleaning something from someone who was living this double life at the time. And, um, but, but for me, 
I just I just want to encourage everyone listening to this and watching this, don't let this shake your faith. If you were helped by Ravi Zacharias, don't let this rock your faith because God is real, Jesus is real, the gospel is true, and I may have more to say on this as time goes by, but for now, I think that is the main question I wanted to answer is what do you do when your lifeboat springs a leak? Well. All I can do with it is know that I got from point A to point B a certain way. Um, but when I look back on it, really, Ravi wasn't my lifeboat. My lifeboat was truth. And some of the true things he spoke helped me. And God used that. And I don't know how to make sense of it beyond that. But I do want to tell you and encourage you to not let our hearts become cynical or hard. The Christian worldview actually has a category for this. The Bible has teaching on this. In fact, I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians 13. It says, Love is patient and love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. And then it says it rejoices with the truth. And I rejoice that the truth is coming out. That's God's mercy. That is God's sovereign hand. And I'm thankful that the truth is coming out. And we can always, as Christians, rejoice in the truth coming out. Because Jesus even said in Luke 8, uh, 17, he said, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to the light. And so I think that this is an opportunity for us as Christians to search our own hearts, repent for our own sin, and view this as an opportunity to clean our own house. We can rejoice that the truth has come out. And my prayer is that the truth will continue to come out and God is still on his throne. He is not surprised by any of this. Jesus is Lord. And, and just a reminder, don't put your faith in men. Don't put your faith in me. Don't put your faith in your favorite YouTube apologist or anything like that. Make sure your trust is placed with the right person, and that's with Jesus Christ. Friends, if you find the content of this podcast helpful to you, if this is something that you would like to help get the word out to more people, it would really help us out if you left positive reviews on iTunes and Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. If you have gone over to YouTube, if you'll subscribe there, click the little bell icon that will send notifications every time we put out a new video. That just helps with algorithms to get the content out into the hands of more people. So let's jump in with this second segment here. I, I talked with Marcia Montenegro, who you may remember from our episode on the Enneagram. I asked her about this view called perennialism. So perennialism is a a view of the nature of God that is gaining a lot of popularity, particularly among progressive Christian circles and among more mystical and contemplative circles. And so uh, I wanted to ask her, what is this teaching? And so we decided to call this video, Perennialism, the most common false teaching that no one's ever heard of with Marsha Montenegro. Check it out. 
perennialism. This is something that you actually wrote to me and said, I think we need to talk about this because this isn't just something that's in the progressive church. It's actually coming into more mainstream evangelical churches as well. So why don't you start by telling us just a general idea of what perennialism is, and then we'll talk about where we're seeing this in the evangelical church. Okay, sure. Um, yeah, and it's great to be on with you again, by the way, Elisa. Always. <laughs> um, yes, perennialism, which is also called perennial wisdom or per the perennial philosophy or the perennial tradition, so you can see it under all those names, is a view that all religions at their core have the same truth or they might say it's the same divine reality. Mm. So outwardly, they admit outwardly the practices are different and the doctrines look different. Um, and that's the exoteric side, E-X-O-T-E-R-I-C, as opposed to esoteric, which is the more hidden, hidden part of, of it, which is the core of all religions. And all religions come from that core and are based on it. And um, what the perennial followers believe is that it is fine to adhere to one religion, um, but it's because you'll benefit from, from whatever is in that religion. But you are aware, if you're a perennial follower, you're aware of this, this truth that unites all religions. So you, you kind of have this insight into the real meaning behind everything or the real source of everything, which to me is sort of Gnostic because it's not obvious. Yeah. And so uh, what you have is people who may say they are a Christian or they're Jewish or they're Hindu, but they follow the perennial philosophy. And so often they will say, I um, follow the Christian tradition or the Christian wisdom tradition, or the Hindu tradition. So sometimes, though, if they're not, if they don't mind saying it, they'll say it. Yeah. And so that's one one kind of thing to to notice. Uh, but a lot of times you can't really tell because the person just won't say, "I I follow perennial wisdom." Um, and that's one of the problems. Is I think it's hard for most people to recognize it because. Uh, first of all, most people don't know about it, and it's really something I heard about years ago um, as, a, as a fairly new Christian, but I hadn't known about it before. And once I understood it, once I started reading about it and reading some things from perennial followers, it helped me get a big picture of it because you see it, it's a bigger piece of the puzzle that other pieces fit into. Mm. So it helped me understand a lot of things. And like Richard Rohr, who yeah. he's very open about being a follower of the perennial philosophy and he pushes it yeah. aggressively. It's on his, it's all over his website. Uh, in yeah. fact, I just pulled up, a, there's several blog posts about it. Uh, he describes it as the perennial tradition points to recurring themes and truths 
within all of the world's religions. At their most mature level, religions cultivate in their followers a deeper union with God, each other, and with reality or what is. And so essentially he's saying, yeah, the Hindu at, at the most mature level of that religion is actually communing with God. And so he'll say, I'm a perennialist, of the, a Christian perennialist of that tradition, but he's not going to make that an exclusive uh, belief that somebody would have to have uh, to where you would have to repudiate belief in other religious ideas. Would right. you say that's that's pretty accurate there? Yes, it is. They they do not believe in blending religions. In other words, they're not they don't want a one world religion where all the religions kind of blend together. They believe in the separate uh, or the distinct religions because they think they offer different things to different people, especially in the culture. So they might say Hinduism, you know, really is the end is for India is the way that they have their faith and the way they learn about truth and who God is. So yeah. they don't see a problem with different religions. Um, so, and because so they believe that at the core, there's this common truth, uh, they don't see that there's any difference in how everything will end up because they believe everybody is going to end up in a good place right. because that's that's because of the truth, because everyone's really following something that is based on truth, even if they aren't aware of it. Now, they may they do say things like um, you uh, have to become aware of this. And, you know, if you aren't aware of it, you kind of miss out on this very profound truth. You're, you're kind of on the surface of the religion mm. and you're following that religion, but you're missing out on this deeper truth. Yeah. And so they, you have to kind of awaken to that. Mm. You have to become aware of it. And, um, you, and then you have to see it. So even if someone tells you about it, you have to kind of find it on your own and understand it and mm. see it. And then it puts you at a deeper level, according to them, of your faith. And you get more benefit from being at that deeper level. And that's kind of, I think, how Richard Rohr is calling it, a, like a less mature version of Christianity. Yes. Would yes. be one that might say, Jesus died for my sins as a sacrifice to reconcile us to God. In fact, he's called that a toxic kind of mindset to have toward yes. God. And so the, the higher levels, the more mature levels of, of each religion, um, essentially, really, is going to be moving more toward in the new age idea of oneness. So Marcia, is this basically universalism or is this something different or how do those two ideas interact with each other? Yes, uh, it, it, it certainly looks like what one would call universalism. I think the reason I wouldn't use that phrase is because universalism is a very broad term and they're actually different forms of universalism. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and I think it's, it's a good term if you're speaking of something very broadly. But, so I would say per, the perennial philosophy fits in that idea, but it's a specific form of universalism. And it has its very specific people and history and uh, the way that it's presented. And of course, I'm more familiar with uh, the way it's being presented by Christian followers yeah. of, of the perennial philosophy than I am of, of somebody else. But I have come across some. Um, I came across a conference I was looking at, 
and it was a conference on contemplative practices. Mm-hmm. And um, they had a one of the people who was speaking was a Jewish man, and he was a Jewish follower of the perennial philosophy. And in fact, it looked like most of them were. And this is something I've discovered. There is a big tie between contemplative practices and the perennial philosophy to the extent that, Elisa, I actually think a lot of the people deeply into contemplative practices are followers of perennial philosophy, including Christians that I've looked at. Well, that would make sense because Richard Rohr, of course, that's his main thing is contemplative spirituality and practices. And then he's tying that with perennialism. That makes perfect sense. But where where do you see this? uh, Because we mentioned we're, we're not just seeing this in fringe sort of movements, or we're not mm-hmm. just seeing this in progressive Christianity, y- you in your research, the reason you felt like this was so important to talk about is because we're seeing this actually in the in the evangelical church. We're seeing this among yes. the more mainstream Christian church. Talk about that a bit and wh- what can yes. people be looking for? And I want to, I just remembered a point I wanted to make that I forgot yeah. to make, and that is they believe that you access this core truth in the perennial philosophy through mysticism. Ah. You access it through experience, and that's why they are very big on contemplative practices. Okay. Because through those practices, you're sort of transformed, your consciousness is transformed, and you are able to see the what the, what the truth is, the, the truth of this perennial view. So that's a very important thing I left out there. And when I was talking about the contemplative uh, teachers being that way, it suddenly hit me. Oh, yeah, that's why. (laughs) Yeah, it sort of like seems like it's interconnected. Uh, You know, that's why the contemplatives fall into it or already are in it. I'm not sure. Okay. But yes, uh, yes, one reason that I got so concerned about this, I already knew Richard Rohr had this view. And I wrote about it in my article on his book, uh, The Universal Christ. And uh, so I already knew that, and there was a few other people I thought had it, but I found out this man named David G. Benner, who's written several books. Uh, Some of his books are used on Christian college campuses or recommended by uh, Christian counselors, and in some cases, uh, at least one of his books would be required reading for a, a counseling degree and this is on a Christian campus. And a few people have told me they read it in seminary. Mm. Now, the book that I'm referring to, and it's not just this one book. There's a few others of, of his people read. But one, the one that seemed the most popular was The Gift of Being Yourself. And it's actually a trilogy he wrote. And he has The Gift of Being Yourself. And then he has two others. Um, finding God's will or, or something about God's will and then uh, the love. Oh, now I've already forgotten the names of them, but <laughs> there's there's two others. So I read The Gift of Being Yourself since that one seemed to be the most mentioned by people, by Christians. Mm. And I have an article on it on my website. Uh, and this was very, very concerning. He talks about the Christ in me and the Christ self. Um, He uses terms like that. Now, I can see how somebody would read this. And if you have, um, you know, a basic Christian doctrinal view, uh, you know, you believe Jesus died for your sins, and you believe you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And, you know, if you have these basic ideas of Christianity, 
you might read what he writes through that filter yeah. and, and not see that he's saying something else. Now, I knew he was a follower of the perennial philosophy because I, I looked into him and I, I didn't know it, but I suspected it strongly. Let me put it mm -hmm. that way. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, he is a master teacher at Richard War's center. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. So that was yeah. a big clue right there. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> he runs a school called the Cascadia School of Living Wisdom. He apparently had removed the website for it before I could really look at it. And so I still Googled around and found a few things. Um, it seems to be an online type of school. So, and it's in Canada. It's based in Canada. But that title... Cascadia School of Living Wisdom, that's a clue that it might be the perennial philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, and so his book, The Gift of Being Yourself, he talks about uh, how you have to come to certain points and see that who you really are, that the self, the self is important to know what the self is. And the book is written, and in, in to me, the language is sort of um, obtuse as far as what he's saying. It sounds very spiritual and very good, um, but I don't find it very clear mm. uh, in terms of <laughs> what I know he's saying, yeah. uh, except in these little phrases he gives, like the Christ in me, the Christ self, mm. the true self. And then he talks about the true self and the false self. Mm -hmm. And this is something Roar talks yes. about, something with the Enneagram. Yeah. Um, they all kind of tie together. It's also talked about in contemplative yeah. spirituality. Um, my, my article, um, Contemplative Prayer, Is It Really Prayer?, which I, I wrote in like 2005, that was 15 years ago, uh, I talked in that article about the concept of true self, false self that was being taught by some of the contemplative teachers. So I had already come across that. And then it started cropping up again um, and with the Enneagram, and I see it with this perennial view as well. So my article focuses on how certain things he says are not biblical. And um, I, I also read the book Living Wisdom. I couldn't find much about it. I found the book. I got the book, and it has a 2019 copyright but I noticed that um, it had two ISBNs, hmm. and the first one had 10 numbers, and, the, and the, the second one has 13 numbers. All books have an ISBN. Um, and apparently, they changed from 10 numbers to 13 numbers in 2007, hmm. so that all books after that have 13 numbers. Now, the fact that there were two numbers given makes me think there was an early, because it said it was a reprint. It gotcha. did say it was a reprint. So um, that means it already existed before, and it had to be before 2007. <clears throat> but I couldn't find it, and I couldn't find any information on it. I couldn't even find out where somebody said what, it, what the first yeah. book was and when it was, you know, copyrighted. But that, to me, indicates it's an earlier book that he that was reprinted or redone. Living Wisdom is just in your face, perennial philosophy. Yeah. It, it, it is just out there. And he just talks about it. He uses the word. He talks about, um, uh, he talks about this uh, wisdom 
uh, he calls, and this is his term for God, the spirit of wisdom. And the spirit of wisdom inhabits all creation, including us, mm. including everybody. So the spirit of wisdom inhabits everything in creation. He talks about how God incarnated as creation. Yeah, Sounds that's just like you know, roar. That's, yeah, this is Richard <laughs> Rohr kind of all takes over. Your breath yeah. away, you know? Like what? <laughs> God yeah. incarnated as creation because God materialized yeah. by becoming creation. Now, this is very similar to what Richard Rohr says when he says the first incarnation of Christ yeah. was creation. Yes. It's really the same idea. And that's panentheism, essentially. That's panentheism. And that's what um, that's one of the characteristics of the perennial philosophy is that it is panentheistic. Okay. You cannot yeah. be a follower of that and not be a panentheist. Yeah. So wow. they go together. Wow. And so God is enmeshed in creation. And so his presence is everywhere and everyone in everybody. So you have already have access to God. And like David Benner says, it's not that, um, and this is a big paraphrase. It's not that, um, God isn't present with us. All that's lacking is awareness. Mm. So it's your awareness. Yeah. And in living wisdom, he talks about how you have to, how you have to achieve a new consciousness. And he even calls it Christ consciousness. Wow. And he says, this is the consciousness you have to get to. And of course, this is the awareness of the perennial philosophy. This is the awareness of the truth of this divine reality at the core of all religions. And that's what he's saying. And in the book, um, it's very interesting what he's doing. He tells the reader to read it slowly and to really kind of meditate on it. Don't go, don't read fast. And then at the end of each chapter, he has these little points for you to consider or questions to consider. And he he has in those little sections uh, a sort of a guide to get you to think about these perennial ideas and to see them. It's I mean, you know, some people might think it's harsh for me to say this, but I really think it's like brainwashing. Yeah, I think it's guiding the reader into this adopting this view. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says to, you know, read and then to meditate. He wants you to meditate, uh, to do these contemplative practices. Of course, doing contemplative practices because of the way they're done, uh, it opens your mind and it basically your critical thinking skills aren't in operation. And so you're more receptive to things that mm. would be maybe you wouldn't accept otherwise. Um, And so his book is just full of this. He even talks about the chakras that, um, which are supposedly these seven centers that a lot of people know this from yoga because it's part, a big part of yoga. Um, And these seven centers in the body uh, that go from the pelvic area to the the top of the uh, crown, the top of the head and he talks about them being portals to the inner and outer worlds. It's this very, uh, very esoteric kind of stuff. And that you're he's saying talking this was about. published on a Christian publisher? Living, um, no, this is a reprint by okay. Whip and Stock. That's right. Well, I think they're secular. 
But this is used in Christian counseling education. I don't think I don't know if Living Wisdom is okay. The but gift of being yourself and a couple of other gotcha. his, of his books, Finding God's Will, and the other one about love. I, I wish I could remember. It's the second book, and it's um, it's about love. This book, since it just came out in 2019. Probably, uh, it may be that of the people who recommend The Gift of Being Yourself and some of his other books may not even know about it. I'm not sure. Mm. I found it just because I was, after I did The Gift of Being Yourself, I thought I should read one more book by him. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at all the books trying to decide. And um, I, I was trying to decide, should I read that one or that one? Or is it going to be too much like the one I just read? And I came across by putting his name in a search box or something, I came across Living Wisdom and the title caught my attention. And I thought, okay, I want I wanted a book where he was more clear about what he believed so I could support my argument that he is a follower of the perennial philosophy. Gotcha, gotcha. Since he doesn't come out and say it in mm-hmm. The Gift of Being Yourself. But in this book, he does. You mentioned and, a really important point before when you said... When you first, you know, some, and, and I think this is true for a lot of Christians, when you're reading a book that is marketed as Christian, you're just assuming that you're operating from the same foundation, from the same yeah. biblical principles, the same worldview, the same gospel. Yeah. You're, you can, so it can be easy sometimes to interpret what somebody is saying through that lens, which is, right. is what you were talking about. So it's not always clear. I like that you brought that up. So as, you know, as we talk through this and, and as we maybe kind of uh, move toward talking about the Enneagram a little bit, with perennialism not being clear in all these books, what are some perhaps buzzwords people can be looking for, yeah. concepts that they can go, okay, that's a red flag, and I, I, I know that I can connect that with perennialism. What are some really practical things people can be looking for, even if they're going to counselors in churches or reading books or something along those lines? How can we recognize this? Okay, yes. Um, well, wisdom is one of the words to look out for. Okay. Um, if, if they say, uh, or and tradition is the other one. So if they say, you know, I follow the Christian tradition, or I follow Christian wisdom, or if they say we need to um, extract the wisdom in all religions or in other religions, like there are, there's wisdom in other religions, and we, we should not ignore that. That may be a sign that they're following the perennial um, tradition. Um, <clears throat> okay, so that's one way. Other, other things that I've seen, like David Benner does, the Christ in me, the Christ self, and uh, of course he uses Christ consciousness, which is actually really a term from the New Age, <laughs> mm-hmm. which got it from New Thought. Um, so any and anything where it looks like the self is being identified with Christ, um, and then the true self, false self ideas might indicate a perennial view. Uh, so those terms about the self, the wisdom, the tradition, divine reality is another one, uh, and also presence. A lot of times I see um, what I assume God to be for the perennial follower. Um, to be called presence. Or even the presence I've seen. Or the presence. The presence, yeah. yeah. So that's another term. Um, the one is another one. Um, uh, spirit, well, he has spirit of wisdom 
is a term Benner used. <clears throat> Whether others use it or not, I'm not sure. It's very possible. And I think especially to be alert for any reference to God in a somewhat impersonal term, uh, you know, not the normal way that we would speak of God, like God as father for a Christian, um, it would be more impersonal. He would be like, that's why presence to presence to me is very impersonal when you just have presence, capital P. It's mm -hmm. like, well, what presence of what? What are you talking about? Right. You know, um, unless you're being specific, it's, it's just very impersonal. Um, it's kind of remote, you know, and then Jesus is talked about as a wise teacher. Um, and even as an archetype, Richard Rohr talks about Jesus as an archetype. And, oh, this is another thing I need to mention. David Benner is a depth psychologist, which means he's a follower of uh, Carl Jung. He's, he, in other oh. words, he uses Jungian psychology. Yes. And Richard Rohr is a big, a big admirer of Jung and often refers to Carl Jung. So if you're a Jungian psychologist, by the way, a lot of New Age counselors are, are Jung, most of them are Jungians. Um, this, there's this idea that Christ is the archetype because Jung came up with this idea of archetypes. And archetypes are figures of certain things like a hero, the mother, um, the lover, mm. uh, the fool. Uh, these are these figures that all of humanity understands and seeks out. It's, it, it's what Carl Jung called the collective unconscious. He believed that we all have, we're all kind of connected through this big collective unconscious. And so we recognize and seek out archetypes. And so Jesus was an archetype of a martyr mm. and, you know, the universal love. And Jesus recognized that he fit that archetype. And so he lived it out. Mm. Interesting. Um, <laughs> Jesus, it's so interesting and, um, how Jesus and, and, always and becomes. Benner says he does. Benner doesn't say that. Uh, I, I quoted that from something in one of my articles. But Benner does say things about Jesus that make Jesus sound more like a, he's more of a principle, yeah, or a symbol rather than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Yeah. And you see that a lot in the progressive church, especially where Jesus becomes. Uh, not always, of course. There are lots of progressive Christians who will declare that Jesus is God. But there's also uh, a, a group of progressive Christians who at least downplay the deity of Jesus, where they might portray him to be more of a highly evolved human that we mm. deified. They might see, you know, this cosmic Christ concept is all over the place, of course, uh, trickling down from Richard Rohr, probably. Yes. And so, so we definitely see this. And I wanted to point out, too, you mentioned that one of the buzzwords you might hear is spirit of wisdom. And it's just, mm -hmm. it might be notable to point out that this is actually a biblical phrase. The Bible says in Ephesians 1, 17, that the God of our Lord 
Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. But there's always counterfeits of these kinds of things. And so yeah. that's what we have to bear in mind. Uh, you know, when you're, when you're hearing that phrase used in conjunction with some of these other things, that can be an indication that there might be some perennialism underneath it. But if they're using it properly and biblically uh, in reference to the Holy Spirit, then then that's that's something different. But, uh, but th I think that's important to point out because there's always going to be counterfeit of language with these yes, types of yes, ideas. They're exactly. going to take some of the language. Like we would use the word wisdom. We would use the word tradition. Yes, yes. But they're changing the meaning of what these words uh, mean to communicate when they use them. And I think that's an important thing to bring up. So just before we move yes. on to the Enneagram, is there anything else that you wanted to add uh, to the discussion on perennialism and, and how you might warn Christians to just be aware of this that might be creeping into their church. Yes, and I think the point you just made was really good because that verse you read where it has spirit of wisdom, of course, in context, we know what that's talking about. And the way that Benner uses it, that's not how he's using it. And of course, we wouldn't say the spirit of wisdom inhabits creation. Right. Um, and, you know, I, in his book, Living Wisdom, when he talks about what is wisdom, he never talks about Jesus Christ as wisdom, which is also in 1 Corinthians. First or 2 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2 talk about Jesus is the wisdom of God. Mm. So, you know, that would be how I would talk about what wisdom is if I was writing about it. You know, I, I would say, okay, let's look at Christ because yeah. he embodies wisdom. He never says that. And he doesn't use any of those verses from Corinthians about Jesus as the wis as wisdom or Jesus being wise. Um, that's to me very significant. Um, yeah, so I think that I think the issue here is that, what, of course, we're call we're called to test everything, and we have to really examine when we're re reading a book that's spiritual and is supposed to be Christian, if anything strikes you as odd or unusual, don't just, don't think, oh, well, it's probably me, I just don't understand it, or, um, you know, maybe it's just this author and that's his way of putting things, if, because I, because the language that Benner uses is different, and so if you see a lot of that, you need to look further, you need to investigate you need to look at the context this person is, is speaking in. And also, is he leaving some significant things out? He never talks about the need to be forgiven. Mm. He never talks about redemption through faith in Christ. He doesn't talk about any of that. So there's a big missing, you know, the gospel is missing, basically. Yeah. But yet he wants you to find out what your real self is. Well, you know, what? That, that's not what we're told to do. We're not supposed yeah. to be searching for our real self. Yeah. So um, to me, even the title, The Gift of Being Yourself, is problematic. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't label it anything unless, you know, I, I read the book, which I did. Yeah. But it's a, a red flag, I think. Yeah. So this, this focus on self is a red flag. And focus on having to change your perception and have this new consciousness of something or new awareness is a big red flag too. So those kind of that kind of language will be around the perennial uh, writings. 
All right, this final segment we're gonna bring you has to do with how the letters of the New Testament were transmitted and copied. One question that I see a lot online or people wanna know what happened. So if Paul wrote a letter to let's say the Galatians and he sent the letter to Galatia, what happened then? Did they copy it? Did they send it on? How did this work? And how did this turn into the multiple thousands of copies of the New Testament books that we have today? So for this, I went to Clark Bates, who's a PhD candidate with the University of Birmingham, specializing in areas of what we would call textual criticism, reconstructing ancient manuscripts. And so he helped us with this question. So this is called, How Were the Letters of the New Testament Copied with Clark Bates? Check it out. So, you know, Paul is writing his letter to, let's say, the church in Galatia. And he, he writes the letter or, or a scribe, you know, writes down, you know, dictates for him. And he sends it on to Galatia. Mm -hmm. And they read it to their people. What happens then to that manuscript? Yeah, and it's, this, is a, this is a great uh, question that actually intersects with a lot of modern... Uh, not even text critical scholarship, more like more modern reception history scholarship that's been coming out about what publication meant at the time of the first century. And so you've got even from, you know, not necessarily just from evangelical circles, but from secular circles, we've been doing a lot of research recently in this. And what we find really corresponds with what you see in the Pauline epistles and this idea where he writes a letter and he tells them to make sure they pass it along, essentially. Or he has an assumption in some letters that they've already read a letter from another church. So that there were these these circular letters that we talked about that were traveling around to different church communities. So the way this would probably have worked is that Paul would have probably written two copies, one for himself that he would keep. And that would be kind of his master copy. And then he would write another one or he'd have somebody write it. And then that copy would then be taken by a, you know, a letter carrier to the church. They would read that letter aloud. The church would likely make a copy for themselves and not necessarily just one person. So if you had a wealthy person in the church, this is how this is how book clubs really kind of existed. So there wasn't like formal publications, but it is uh, it is a fairly well-established fact based on letters that we've read from this time period on papyri that certain individuals would have friends that want to read. So they would they would read, talk about this book, or they would read something from this book that they had, and then those friends would ask if they could have a copy made. If they had the money, someone would make the copy. And then that book would be taken to that person's house, and that book would be read to more people, and those people, again, would want a copy made. And so this is how book transmission prior to the age of publishing houses, really started happening. And this is exactly the, the method in which we see the Pauline epistles travel. So the reality is that one church would make the copy, they would send it on. More copies would probably have been made by a few individuals in that church, and then those would go to their respective homes. If they again, if they were wealthy, this is you have to we don't fully understand the dynamic of wealth in the church. A lot of Christians were poor, but there were some that were wealthy. So a lot of people maybe that hosted the house church would have their own copy. And so those letters would get transmitted, and they would transmit as far as the church spread. That's where those letters would go. And we do see in certain areas of history, especially early on, certain church fathers don't quote certain books very often or at all, which could be a suggestion that those books had not quite yet made it mm. to that region because they're not being transmitted as much. And, of course, we do have 
some of these other Catholic epistles we call them, like First Peter, Second Peter, First, Second, Third John, Jude, didn't get transmitted quite as much. And you know, to be honest, we don't really preach on them all that very much today, <laughs> so it's not surprising that that necessarily didn't take traction. But that's kind of how we would see, we would expect to see mm. uh, the letters of the New Testament spread, and that's exactly what we do see uh, everywhere else. And it, and like you said, internally, that seems to be what we we read in Paul's own writings. And just for clarity for uh, anyone who may be unfamiliar with some of the language that you just used, when you say Catholic <laughs> epistles, you don't mean capital C. You mean... <laughs> no, yes. We call, uh, we, whenever I refer to that term, unless I, unless I put a Roman in front of it, uh, if I don't say Roman Catholic, what I mean is Catholic in the sense of universal. So right. um, in, in, I suppose, in different circles, you would hear the letters known as uh, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, James, Jude, and 1, 2, and 3 John all referred to as Catholic epistles, um, only because they don't have it. They don't have a specific audience. They're not right. written to a church like Paul's epistles are. So we just look at them as universal epistles for everyone. So as these letters get copied and these writings get sort of transmitted throughout the ancient world, and that continues to to happen. Uh, even through uh, you know up until the invention of the printing press. Now. Let's talk about what we have today. So we we have ancient copies. Some are older than others. Some uh, are more accurate than others. But we have a lot of, you know, multiple thousands of copies of the New Testament, various mm -hmm. writings of the New Testament in Greek. And so now that we have, and, and I, as far as I understand, they're still discovering more. Yes. Even yeah, we as time just goes added on. a few more. <laughs> yeah, so, so they're still discovering more. And so... When we're looking at different manuscripts, uh, one thing that is common knowledge is that you'll you might look at a couple of different manuscripts of the same essential writing, uh, mm -hmm. but there might be some variances between the two manuscripts. So how how do we go about thinking about that? Yeah, and you know that we see that this this wasn't a new thing. So this is essentially what we would call textual criticism: is when you compare. Two more than one manuscript, two manuscripts together, and you find a difference between the two, you have to make a decision to which reading you choose. And you do this with any book you might have two copies of, and they do this with every book that exists. You know, there is even now when we, we have a book published, uh, at least you have a book coming out, or it is out, I believe, actually, right now. If there's errors in that published, published copy, you start creating a list of errors, you send it back to the publisher, and in a second printing, they correct that. Okay, that's essentially textual criticism because you're now going to take those two copies and you're going to decide which one's the more accurate copy based on the differences. So this has been the way books have been examined throughout history. And we know that Augustine uh, knew of this. He talks about differences in his copies. Uh, Irenaeus in the second century knew of this. So he talks about differences. These readings have they, – the fact that there are different readings in certain texts have always been known. So this is not a surprise and it's not a modern issue. What the question we have today is, is if we truly want to know the original text or as close to the original text as we can, which is more or less the focus for all evangelical text critics, is we want to know what God said, mm. down to the jot and tittle if we can. And if we really want to know that, we have to start making decisions about what do we do with each variation. And so you you get to the point where you start to examine what the readings say, what makes sense of the differences. So sometimes a shorter reading versus a longer reading might make sense because at words were added, maybe they added Lord to the end of Jesus Christ. 
maybe they added, you know, Jesus to Lord, just to clarify. Sometimes you see mistakes that arise because spellings are very similar. Uh, mistakes also arise because the sound of words are similar. And if the scribe is copying in, based on what someone is reading to him or her, then they might write the wrong letters because they sound the same. Uh, and so what we do is, uh, as text critics is we look at all of these possibilities based on the manuscripts that we have before us. And this is the same method that's been used. We just have more to look at now. And we start to identify which readings seem to go back farther in time, which readings make more sense of the text. And then we come down to usually a handful of readings that are potentially the oldest and critical decisions have to be made. And not everybody agrees, but that's why we have in the printed copies of our Greek texts, we have a list of all of them. Mm-hmm. So you can read that if you're in this field and you can make a decision based on what all that evidence, do I agree with them or do I not? Uh, and that's where this discussion happens as we discuss, okay, this is why I agree. This is why I don't agree. Um, and ultimately, you know, that might sound scary to some people in the church that this is happening, but I can tell you that the vast majority of these differences make no difference in your English Bible. Um, in fact, I think of the ones that do, you might have three Mm. in the gospel that in the L four gospels that ever get mentioned. Yeah. So it's, well, it's not something that, we're, we're unsure. It's simply trying to be as exact and specific as possible. I'm glad you brought that that last point back around because I think just for the average Christian in the pews, we want to know that our Bible is accurate. You know, we're yeah. we're probably not going to get into all of the the uh, nuanced discussions over if it should be Jesus or Jesus Christ or if you know Christ should come before Jesus. If it should be Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, because these two manuscripts, <laughs> yeah. you know, and and. Just to, you know, to support that point too, uh, I subscribe to Bart Ehrman's blog. Who he's, you know, if anyone's unfamiliar to him, he's a, a skeptical New Testament scholar who grew up in the evangelical church, but deconverted. And so I've heard him refer to himself both as an agnostic and as an atheist. Um, in fact, I think agnostic atheist might be the term that I saw him use <laughs> I think in a blog he uses post. That, yeah, yeah. Um, but even he, I, I actually quoted him in my book because he said exactly what you said. Now, this is a guy who has Mm -hmm. nothing invested in Christianity being true or in the Bible being the Word of God, but even he said the the vast majority, it's just such a tiny percentage that's actually going to affect the text. And a lot of people have made the point, and there's been some debate over how to perfectly word this, but the, the major point being that there there aren't any variants that are going to change a Christian doctrine. There right. there's nothing it's not like the long ending of Mark, which I have a blog post about if you want to learn more about that. <laughs> the long ending of Mark, even if we completely took that away, we don't lose the resurrection. The resurrection is still right. found in Mark. It's still found in the other gospels, in fact all the other gospels. And so there isn't going to be a variation that you're going to discover or that we have yet discovered that mm-hmm. calls into question any sort of core gospel, uh, you know, doctrine. Would you agree with the way I worded that? I would. And I think that the beauty, this is the beauty of, of God's word, the beauty of the New Testament. And I, and I will give credit where credit's due. You know, my professor, Dr. Gurry, Dr. Peter Gurry, has said this in the best way I think is possible, and I'll try to try to do it justice, is that, yes, we have vari- variants in the text that touch on doctrine, but no Christian doctrine is relying on one verse in the faith. Yeah. So you don't ever have to worry about 
well, this variant might change whether, you know, whether the resurrection is true or whether Jesus was truly the Son of God. No, of course not, because the, the beauty of the, the tapestry that is the New Testament is that no core doctrine of the faith relies on a single text. It, it is something that you find throughout, uh, and so no variation will ever make that big of a difference. Yeah. Yeah, it's not like we're talking about finding a copy of Luke's Gospel from one region and time period, and then finding another copy of Luke's Gospel from another time period that are that are completely saying different things. These right. are these are minor, in for the most part, minor minor vari- vari- variations. <laughs> I can't speak yes. English today. <laughs> Friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. If this is your first time listening, please be sure and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to, and we'll see you next time. Have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.